Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Early one morning the sun was shining, she was lying in bed. Wondering if she'd changed it all, if her hair was still red. If folks they set their lives together, shoes are gonna be rough. They never did like mama's homemade dress, papa's bank book wasn't big enough. Was standing on the side of the road, rain falling on the shoes. Heading out for the East Coast, Lord knows he paid some dues. Getting through, tangled up in blue. You know, I'd forgotten about the fact that he was wondering if her hair was still red. There's more color in this song even than I had realized. Um, and the reason that I'm more attuned to nuances like that in Bob Dylan's song uh, is that we are talking about color today. Uh, the book that has prompted all of this is On Color by uh, David Scott Caston uh, with Stephen Farthing. Uh, and he's here in the studio with us. That would be the aforementioned uh, David Scott Caston. Uh, and he's the George M. Bodman, a professor of English at Yale University. Um, and um, before we even leap into this, uh, one of the reasons, one of the things that this book deals with, I think, in a really fascinating way, there's, um, I won't get this one exactly right, but uh, St. Augustine at some point says something like, if nobody asks me what time is, I know what it is. If any, anybody asks me, I can't explain it. And color's a little bit like that, right? I mean, we all know what color is, except that if we really, once you ask someone to, de- to define it, there are a bunch of different options, but not one wholly agreed upon way of thinking about color. Yeah, I think that's right. The Augustine quote's perfect. It's the same is true of color. And it, this was a, a book I think I started to write thinking about the way I think about most things, that it's better to try to figure out what's there rather than what you think is there or what you want to be there. And then I found out <laughs> working on color that with color you can only respond to what you think is there or what you want to be there. And what's there is really mysterious. Uh, I was reading an essay about Joseph Albers, whom we'll be talking about later, uh, and the uh, writer writes, color is a product of of both of culture and of nature, of the physics of light and the highly complicated structures of the human brain and eye. It's both absent and present, real and imagined, object and subject. This runs all through your book, that whole question. I think that's true, and I would just add one more piece to that, which is that color is, in in that sense, uh, always relational, you know, and in another sense, it's always relative. And the only thing I would add to those wonderful comments from Albers is, is is that there's a whole cultural concept that really is equally complicated and can't. It's not so easy to talk about either. But the sort of you know, physics of color is so complicated, and nobody even agrees among scientists not only what it is, but what what you're even talking about. You know, we tend to think color's just, as you say, just out there, a natural property of the things we see. But that's not quite right. Um, Before we go uh, any further, I want to say that this first uh, part of our show is being broadcast in this format we call Radio for the Deaf. Uh, We have the wonderful interpreters Mary Sue Owen and Heidi Catalan uh, from Source Interpreting here in the studio with me and David. Uh, They're interpreting a portion of today's show in American Sign Language. It is on Facebook Live on the Colin McEnroe Show page, the Colin McEnroe Show page 
uh, on Facebook, you, you'll see. So if you know, and this would be a topic, I think, that would be particularly of interest uh, to a deaf listener. So our deaf listener is the wrong way to say it, by a deaf consumer of this particular radio show. Uh, and so if you know anybody who fits that category, I mean, it, it's live right now. It'll be up there forever. So just please tell them that this is this is happening. Um, so... Um, Back to color. So there'll be some people who are sitting there going, what are you talking about? I mean, you know, I, I know what red is. You know what red is. If we all looked at the same object that was red, we'd all agree it was red. What do you mean there isn't a common understanding about that? Yeah, no, I think that's an important thing. One, it's probably not entirely true. Right. I think most most normally sighted people could agree that something is red, but whether they're actually seeing the same shade or tint of red turns out not to be true. But the, it's the deeper issue is, you know, sort of the, not what is color, sort of where is color. Mm -hmm. and it was interesting to me when I was doing the research of the book, I talked to chemists and physicists and neurobiologists, and everybody actually not only had a different definition of color, but all located it somewhere else. So, for instance, a chemist will say, well, what color is is a particular set of microphysical properties in an object that reflects light in a certain way to produce the sensation of color. And a physicist would say something like, well, that's you know, a secondary cause. The real issue is you know, what are the electric, electromagnetic waves that those properties are reflecting, and that's color, the bandwidth of those electromagnetic waves. Now, neurobiologists would say, well, you're missing the step, too, because, you know, first those waves, as they get reflected to the retina, so they're absorbing it, and they're transmitting some signal to the uh, visual cortex, and that's what color really is. And then you find these sort of philosophers of consciousness who say, well, you know, you all missed it. I mean, all those are part of it. But the real issue is how do these signals that get somewhere into the various cortical locations in the brain, how do they produce a sensation of color? And that actually nobody knows the answer to. Right. And this is an argument that didn't start yesterday. It's been going on and on for a long time. You cite Democritus in the 5th century BC. Um, I mean, my guy Goethe is obsessed with the question of what color is uh, and what colors are and what are the colors. And he kind of passes that over to Schopenhauer. I mean, philosophers have been thrashing around at this for a heck of a long time. Yeah. And I think that for me, coming as a literary scholar and cultural critic, I mean, I sort of started it entering through the philosophers. Uh, that was my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. The neurobiologists were not, um, though people were incredibly generous to me when I was writing the book because I would send random emails off and say, hey, can we want to talk about neurobiology? And almost everybody <laughs> said, why not? But I think, I think that's true. I think we've always been uncertain where, where color is. When Newton argued with his prism experiments that what color, most color was, some color was, was the fracturing of white light into the prismatic colors. You know, that was a, a, a source for color, but doesn't explain lots of other things, the colors that aren't present in, in light or the color illusions that we all experience at different times. One of my favorite things in the book, by the way, is uh, something I found in a manuscript in Cambridge. Uh, it's one of in Newton's manuscripts, and he's got a picture of an, of an eyeball and a big knife, mm. and he's kind of poking, in, and he says that that's what he was doing. He was sort of poking at his eye because he knew he could produce color somethings, color visions, but were those colors, and they didn't satisfy his definition of color through light. So people have been wondering what it is, and, and then it turns out, a lot, a lot of it we we make up quite literally. Mm -hmm. 
Well, first of all, where was Newton's mother? Isaac, stop that. Stop it. Don't poke your eye. Um, well, yeah, so let's talk about this in, in kind of uh, nitty-gritty detail. So w- what happens if we sit uh, an experimental subject down at a table with a lot of t- different colored tiles, you know, a lot of them, and we say, pick out the ones that are red. First of all, will everybody choose the same tiles that are red? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and there's been a lot of research done on it. And one of the things that's interesting, even the idea of picking out tiles, because that, that already suggests that you think, we think, the experimenter thinks that color is something that's abstract and isolatable. Mm-hmm. And many people, we experience it that way. Many people think that's true, but it's mostly a result of kind of modern industrialized practices. So the interesting example to me is there's a famous article by a group of Danish anthropologists that go visit one of the islands in the South Seas that had hardly had any uh, white people come to the island. And they do exactly that. They bring color tiles and say, well, pick out the ones that are red. And they just look at them like, what, what are you talking about? And they say, actually, the line that one of them says to the anthropologist is, we don't talk much about color here. And that's actually the name of the article they mm-hmm. write. But then it turns out they talk about color all the time. They have, they can't group the red tiles as something that's red because for them red is a whole range of colors and they're very carefully discriminated. There's the red that your teeth turn when you chew beetle nuts and there's the red of the sky before it's really fully above the horizon. And they, you know, they have all these other terms that don't correspond to some isolatable abstract reality that we would call it. So they don't do it at all. But then it turns out even with people who live in modern industrialized society, they don't quite group them all the same way. In Japan, uh, green and blue are kind of overlapping categories and they don't see those as separate colors, though increasingly globalization and industrialization has rendered that somewhat less true now. In Tokyo, that doesn't happen so much. In Kyoto, it still does. Mm-hmm. Um, in Russia, they have two different words for blue that don't seem to be the same color at all, but everybody in France would say, oh, those are types of blue. I mean, they're just these weird things. And then the, uh, my, one of my favorite things I discovered, one of the things I loved about doing this book is just mm-hmm. everybody has experiences of color that mm-hmm. I didn't, obviously. And I was, had a fellowship somewhere in Europe, and I was working on this and giving some talks about it. And someone came up and said to me, oh, well, there are two words for red in Hungarian. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. But, you know, actually, a lot of languages have multiple words for colors. And they said, no, but these aren't chromatic. Mm-hmm. They're not measuring a dark red and a light red. It's actually, and the guy thought for a minute, what would be the right word? And he said, well, it's kind of affective. You know, it's a, it, it's a, he said, there's a happy red and a sad or dangerous red. So he said, you know, the uh, deep red burgundy wine, which might be the same color of blood, actually has, there's a different word for one. The happy red is the wine red. The more mm. complicated one is the the one you'd use, you'd use for blood. A child's ball, whether it's dark red or light 
red is always the happy red. Right. Easter egg is always the happy red. I think now under Orban, they're under the, they have the dangerous red is kind of what's working. Well, let me go back to the tiles for a second. If we're doing that experiment with the tiles, is it possible um, to find among the tiles a kind of proto-red? In other words, you know, there are different shades of red. Right. There's, you know, barn red, this red, that red. Is there a red that we can all agree is, I mean, red's a so-called primary color. Is right. there a primary red? Yeah, I I think what happens with that is when you discover when people do these tile experiments with really a wide range of shades or tints of a color, you'll find a sort of area, a kind of highly saturated, uh, sort of mid-level version of the color that everyone will agree, well, this is really red. And these mm -hmm. other things, that's dark red, that's light red, but this one's really red. Except with the, if there are a lot of tiles, they won't usually agree on which is this one. <laughs> so the answer is no. There's no proto-red. So you were talking about Russia having different words for blue. And I was thinking, well, there are just a bunch of reds there anyway. So we need to talk about that. That we take these words uh, and, you know, that, that mean color and then shift them into words about a political orientation, mood, race. Maybe we talk about race for a second. One of the things, I think it's in the yellow section of the book, you uh, just talk about the way in which we just, at a certain point, kind of arbitrarily, arbitrarily throw these color words at race in a way that doesn't even really correspond to how people look. Right. I mean, that seemed to me, from my thinking, was one of the places where I began that we have this sort of implausible, inaccurate uh, set of metaphors of colors to describe racial difference. But nobody's black, nobody's white, nobody's red, nobody's yellow. And, and yet this settled in at, at some point. And the reason I put this in the yellow chapter, that I got interested in the fact that I was interested in, so when did Asians start being identified as yellow? And I thought it would be early, and there are all these records, early Europeans coming to China and Japan in the 16th century, uh, mostly Jesuits uh, looking to convert people, and they send lots of material back, letters and diaries have survived, and inevitably they say, oh, they're white like us. Mm -hmm. And that happens over and over and over again. Marco Polo, who much earlier says, oh, I was in China, they're white like us. That mm. phrase appears in multiple European languages over and over again. George Washington finally meets some Chinese naval officers and he said, oh, I thought they were white like us. Mm. It's just what educated Europeans yeah. did, did think. And it really wasn't until the 19th century, it's really quite late, when people start to see them decisively as as yellow, and some of that, well, most of that, was you know more, as I say in the book, more prejudice than pigment. Mm. And it was as people started to fear waves of immigration, as people were worried about growing both Chinese and Japanese military strength. And Kaiser Wilhelm was the first person to popularize the the, the phrase the yellow peril. Mm. And then, you, and he actually had a painting made, a fabulous, weird painting of kind of Valkyrie-like, large white muscular warrior women sort of protecting Europe from this array of yellow people across the ocean. And he was so sure this was going to be the future, this clash of civilizations, that he had multiple copies of this painting made. And he sent it to all the kings of Europe and to President McKinley. And to me, the great irony is there was a major clash very soon after that. This was early in the 20th century when he's doing this. And he keeps saying, watch out, this is really going to happen. And then, you know, by 
the First World War, there's a, a major war, but it wasn't a, that clash of civilizations. It was the European countries in, in the midst of this world war. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, first of all, let me just say we're talking to David Scott Castan, uh, George M. Bodner, professor of English at Yale and author of On Color with Stephen Farthing. Um, so on uh, September 23rd, uh, my Green Bay Packers, here's my mug, will go and play the Washington Redskins. Um, so let's just stay with this idea of race. I mean, that's an offensive name for a football team. It's an offensive thing anyway. Uh, and as a New York Giant fan, it's an offensive team. Right. So. There you go. There's that <laughs> problem too. So um, and, and one of the places that a lot of this stuff played out, oddly enough, was in our childhood large box of yeah. Crayola crayons. Like there was an Indian red, right? And there were all kinds yeah. of questions about what flesh tone is. Right. Talk a little bit about that. Well, what interested me, I did get access to the Crayola archive at one point, and I was fascinated reading. So the very first box of crayons that Crayola makes is 1903, and they have multicolors. It's about 24, but one is called Indian Red, which mm. has its own history, and the other was called, uh, I think, Flesh Tint. Mm. And then gradually, Flesh Tint gave way to a, a standard color in all the Crayola boxes just called Flesh. And then about 1963, and that date is not inconsequential, beginning of the civil rights movement, suddenly they realized, whoa, that's, you're calling that flesh, but that's not a flesh color for a lot of people on the earth. So they changed the name to peach, which I, I thought was interesting. <laughs> and they realized that well, was- We have a, an orange president now, that, so anyway. That's right. <laughs> and that, uh, so they, re they realized, they were sensitized to this, but there still was that color Indian red, which e even that they, finally changed to, I think it's mahogany. Um, though Indian red was not named after any people, it was named that the dye that produced it was found in, in India, but they decided you can't be too careful around these things. So there is an enormous anxiety about this. Now they do have a box of crayons called uh, multicultural colors, which I like, <laughs> which they, they happily proclaim is non-toxic, but so much about the color stories are Toxic. Right. So that's the Crayola woke uh, version. Yes. Um, so um, let's, uh, we're fast, we're kind of speed dating through this book. There's just tremendous amounts of detail. The book, by the way, is uh, wonderfully organized in chapters b by color. Um, and the color allows David uh, to kind of take a dive off that diving board into a whole bunch of different uh, kind of sub areas. And it's just a, a fun way to, to go through an interestingly diverse intellectual process. So when we get to blue, I mean, blue is so interesting, too, because it's in, it is so linked to mood. But as you point out, it's also linked to heaven. You know, I mean, there's nothing better than blue skies. So, I mean, what about there's <laughs> it seems kind of irresolvable somehow. It could be the, the darkest mood and the brightest sky. Right. I, but that seems to be true about all colors. I, mean, I guess when I kept trying to think, do I have uh, an, a narrative mm. uh, for this book? And the answer was really no. As you said, it's sort of 10 essays on 10 colors and some weird idea in my head is shoehorned under <laughs> one color or another more or less plausibly. And what struck me is if I do have a narrative, it's something like the physiological thing we were talking about before, the neurobiological thing, that we make color. Color doesn't much exist without human beings. There are potentialities for color, but without a perceiver, there isn't color. Mm -hmm. But once we've made it, it's there for us to do things with it. And so, you know, my little quick version of my book is we make color, color makes us. Mm -hmm. But the difficulty is, you know, there aren't that many colors and there are such complicated aspects to our lives that 
we ask colors to do lots of different things. Mm. Uh, and almost no color has a, a stable set a set of associations. They're multiple and they're usually contradictory and they shift over time, even the most obvious ones. And blue was an interesting one because the one where you talk about blue moods and singing the blues, mm -hmm. uh, Picasso's blue period, there's this whole history of blue as a depression, uh, melancholy in some way, tangled up in blue is mm. Dylan's song is so wonderful because of that. I mean, but we all are because the other side of that coin is, as you say, blue skies, nothing but blue skies. Mm -hmm. And then you go even further, blue is the real color of transcendence. The, when you, in the Bible, you look up to heaven and you see blue filtered through the, the sapphires that are there on the bottom of heaven. And so many religions have blue as a really central aspect to it. There's the blue mosque and Vishnu is blue. And so somewhere it toggles between this astonishing sense of transcendence, these gorgeous blues. Uh, think of those medieval paintings. And one of the art history questions is always, you know, why does the Virgin wear blue, this rich transcendent blue? And part of one of the reasons is, of course, uh, ultramarine, uh, this fabulous co color that came from lapis lazuli. It, it was the most expensive pigment that any painter could use. So it filtered back into this. So it doesn't this get valued then. It gives value. So, but let me just, I mean, so, okay, the, there would be, you know, a, a sort of semi-rational ascribable set of properties that, that might result in a certain kind of attitude. But in general, I don't know. Back when I was a feckless undergraduate at the institution where you teach, I remember reading a, a line by Ernest Becker that stayed with me. He said, um, every erotic cue uh, in nature is arbitrary, like the, a yellow stripe on the back of a snake. You know, that may be a sign to mate, but there's no reason why it should be. Um, and, and I'm wondering whether that can be extended forward into your overall thesis. And I'll give you another example. In the movie Fifth Element, which is uh, obviously a, just a Rosetta Stone for understanding all kinds of things. Uh, they, it takes place way in the future. It's a science fiction movie. And they've decided that green is, is a word of approval. It sort of means some kind of combination between really great and okay. They'll go green, green, you know, or it's green. Uh, and, and what they're saying, I think, what the filmmaker is saying is, this, these are arbitrary associations. They've just decided. I mean, you could make some kind of rational case for green being really good. <laughs> but but I don't know. At, at bottom, are these kind of arbitrary? Yeah, well, that's the Packer fan in you speaking right. clearly. Right, but exactly. I think, I think this is true. I think they are arbitrary. I, I think they are unstable, and they're often wildly contradictory. And e even the ones that seem most uh, unavoidable, so green as the color, say, of the environmental movement, well, seems obvious enough. Um, even the word green comes from... Uh, it's linguistic history is related to a whole series of words that are about growing and flourishing, even in other forms, the French and verde in Spanish. Mm. So it's always that growth word. But, you know, green is also the color of moldy cheese and uh, algae and lakes that are dying. And we're ambivalent about green anyhow. And then we It's just, not easy being green. It's not easy being green. And we do very different things with it. There was, you know, one of the interesting moments in the complex political history of the Middle East uh, was when Ahmadinejad was reelected in 2009, there was a kind of coalition, grassroots, largely democratic party, which they called themselves the Green Party, the mm -hmm. Green Path of Hope. And according to some people, they actually won, but they mm -hmm. weren't allowed to win. And 
when the election was over, their leaders were uh, put under house arrest. But that green didn't really have anything to do with ecology. It was a kind of mm. color uh, of hope. And green works in, you know, think of Ireland green and orange playing itself out in Ireland. And I mm. guess my sense is there, there aren't so many primary colors that any one of them can be used exclusively right. for anything. And we could have a whole conversation about vexillology. In fact, yeah. we have had whole conversations about vexillology, but what we need to do now is take a break. That's, this is the end of our Radio for the Deaf segment, I believe. Thanks so much to Heidi and uh, Mary Sue for their incredible work as interpreters in American Sign Language. Go to the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. You can see them at work. Uh, we're going to come back. We're going to talk uh, more about somebody we mentioned already, Joseph Albers, the artist. We are having a conversation about color today with David Scott Kasten, a professor of English at Yale University and author of On Color with Stephen, Stephen Farthing. This is a really fun and also intellectually very engaging book. Now also joining our conversation through the miracle of Skype, uh, Nicholas Fox Weber, executive director of the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation and author of many books and essays, including Joseph Albers, a retrospective and the drawings of Joseph Albers. So uh, first of all, uh, Nicholas Fox Weber, welcome to our conversation. Thank you very much. Pleasure to participate. So we should say that you're in Milan right now. Joseph Albers, I mean, to, to idiots like me anyway, uh, Joseph Albers is known for squares and for color uh, and for combining those two things. One of the reasons you're in Milan right now, do I understand? Oh, you're in Ireland now, it says. Uh, but, uh, but you've been there uh, because of a trial. Has there been some kind of trial involving uh, a counterfeit Joseph Albers? Yes, I testified in Milan on Monday um, in a trial where I was on the witness stand for two and a half hours um, because of the efforts of some people to sell fake paintings uh, purportedly by Joseph Albers. Um, though, as I explained to the judge, um, what I was looking at would be like representing um, a very cheap plastic bag as a real Gucci handbag. Uh, the judge didn't know too much about visual art, so the handbag analogy um, was rather convincing to her. And I was struck by the way that although these paintings imitated Joseph's work, they had none of the richness, the qualities of color um, that were the goal of his life. So, so let me just uh, stop for a second here. So there's this, of course, a famous uh, series of paintings, uh, homage to the square. And you're saying that the richness of color is what's missing. So can I, th once again, I mean, as, as David has made clear all along, this is a very difficult thing to talk about, the difference between real Joseph Albers yellow and somebody else's attempt to do Joseph Albers yellow. I don't know. Is, are there words for that particular gap between those two things? I think that there are words. Uh, the quality that I'm talking about has to do with the impact of one color on another color. What interested Joseph most of all was color relativity. It wasn't a single yellow on its own. It was a yellow next to an orange and an orange next to a gray and the impact that one had on the other. 
And the paintings that are called Homages to the Square were the culmination of a life's work. He only began them when he was 62 years old. He did continue them for the rest of his life and until he was 88. Um, but he had been exploring color ever since the early years of his life when he worked in stained glass and made wonderful assemblages where bright light passing through um, glass has a particular radiance and a purity, and you see the impact of color on its neighbors. Neighbors was a word that Joseph used specifically. So um, let me just turn for a second to David here. I mean, artist after artist has have tried to work out their relationship with color. I mean, Van Gogh had this whole thing about orange. Maybe you can give us a, a sense of what, what that was to him. Well, I think orange for Van Gogh was a terribly important color, but in the way Nick was just talking, I mean, for him it was always orange in relation to blue. I mean, he sort of set up what he said in some letter to his brother, you know, electrical poles of energy. And I think this is something, Albers was the great teacher of this, the formulizer of it, but I think almost all painters have known this, or great painters have known this. Leonardo says that in one of his instructions to some students, he says that, you know, you never see a color as it is. You only see it in relation to the grounds that, the ground that surrounds it. So Albert's teaching has been enormously influential, and those experiments with color are e extraordinary, and good for Nick if he can keep the fakes off the market. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I want to talk about whether these uh, colors, uh, Nick, whether they, for Albert's, are colors that exist in some kind of celestial abstract space or, or, I mean, there's one moment where I think he compares or he says that the yellow in some of his paintings reminds him of squared up fried eggs, which makes me think, well, so there's a yellow that I can understand from the real world. But, but, but does his yellow exist there or does it exist in some other place? Well, I'd like to answer a couple of things in sequence, if I could. First of all, it's wonderful, David, that you mentioned Van Gogh, um, who was one of Joseph's earliest influences. When, as a young man, he went to Berlin to study the teaching of art, um, Van Gogh was the artist who got to him above all others, except for Cezanne, who was another hero to him. On the issue of his square fried eggs, that was very Joseph, because he liked to reduce things to simple language um, and make take the pretension out of speaking. Um, and he didn't like all sorts of justification for work, so that when people would ask him, how do you paint? He would say, I paint the way that I spread butter on bread. And then he would begin to talk about why Westphalian bread um, good dark pumpernickel was so much better than white bread in America, which he compared to Kleenex. The square fried egg remark was a remark that he made very much after doing the painting. But he saw colors not as representing anything but themselves. Um, we, he, he didn't always go into associations so that Green did not necessarily correspond to foliage or nature, um, but rather it could have a quality that was beyond um, that of a particular 
subject or even of a series of subjects. And when he created the squares, when he began to create the squares, he had developed a very simple monosyllabic language, a square within a square within a square, or sometimes a fourth square, a particular mathematical composition that allowed the colors to cause motion to occur so that sometimes you feel that the innermost color is nearest to you. Sometimes you feel that it's furthest away. The arrangement caused colors optically to penetrate one another so that if you were to look at the second color out in an homage to the square, you'll see that it appears shaded as if it's going from a lighter tone to a darker tone, but in fact, it's painted flat. And that is because of the impact of one color on another. But the color itself was simply pigment straight out of a tube applied directly with a painter's knife to a white board. No, I, um, I'm going to uh, come back to you in just a second to talk about this, Nick, that um, Albers is clearly having a moment. First of all, I should say, there's a, there are painters who listen to this show while they're painting. Uh, and so, Carrie Smith, I hope that you're listening to this show right now. Uh, anyway, um, so Albers is having a real moment right now. Uh, President Obama had a series of Albers um, uh, paintings, uh, I think, going down a staircase. Uh, I was reading a design blog today where designers are just saying he is the biggest influence on design that they can think of. Um, uh, there's just all kinds of retrospectives and exhibitions in recent years. But, you know, David, that, that gets me back to a question that I didn't ask you earlier, which is colors come into vogue. There's Pantone and places like that pick a color of the year. I mean, does that have any particular meaning I mean, when, when a color is having or a specific kind of color, David, is having a moment? Well, colors do have moments and people respond to what designers tell us and what, you know, how in gardens features. But see, <laughs> the thing that really interests me about this is uh, one of the fascinating things to me is, say, N Newton is the one we give credit for developing the notion of at least the colors con that are constituent of light. But he couldn't actually make up his mind how many colors he saw. Right. There's an amazing series of letters where he writes to the head of the Royal Society and he says, actually, my eyes don't discriminate color very well. And he says he's not sure whether they're seven or they're five or they're 11. And then he finally decides they're seven, but that's not because he saw seven. It's because there are seven notes in the diatonic scale and he thought this was some cosmic principle of the way the world is organized. But then he figures, well, how am I going to get seven? And he decides he has to see uh, orange and uh, and and indigo, you know, somewhere in there to get get his seven. And I think no nobody saw indigo before Newton was. Indigo is the name of a dye that dyed things blue. Mm -hmm. Then Newton says this is a color, and the game changes. And you know whether you decide that you're going to paint your breakfast nook you know, m morning mango, uh, that may be a function of reading a design magazine, but even something more basic than that, 
there are, we are responsive to other factors, and we see colors. I mean, I, for me, it's always they're, they're all pigments of the imagination. <laughs> very good. I see what you did there. We're actually doing a show on puns very soon. We'll we'll bring that one back. <laughs> so, um, uh, Nick, let's go back to you. I mean, I think it is fair to say. Once again, I'm I'm a naive about all this stuff, but it seems as though Albers really is having a moment. Not that he ever went away, but it just seems like there's a lot of excitement that filters out of the art world into other parts of the popular world. Any thoughts about that? Like why would that be happening at this particular moment? Well, first of all, I have to say that I love the expression pigments of the imagination. <laughs> uh, that's quite brilliant. Um, the second thing is that Joseph has gone in and out of popularity in a certain way. And I say that because um, in 1970, he was the first living American artist given a solo retrospective at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. And um, shortly after his death, one of his homages to the square called Glow was used as a postage stamp um, made in an edition of 170 million by the U.S. Department of Education with their slogan, Learning Never Ends. And the art world has its fashions. I'd like to think that the reason for the resurgence of interest in Joseph's work, and I should add, an even greater resurgence of interest in the art of his wife, Annie, a fantastic um, artist of textiles and prints, um, that part of the resurgence is because people are really looking for lasting values. What matters more than trends? Um, Joseph in no way um, cared for the idea of color of the year or interior <laughs> decorator saying you must put this with that. He was in favor of a much more expansive approach. He used to say that he had no favorite colors. What fascinated him was the way that colors performed next to one another. So he might put a Grumbacher, that's a paint manufacturer, a Grumbacher Mars Yellow next to a Winsor & Newton Riley's Gray, and then he would use a Shiva Mars Yellow, same name, different manufacturer, next to that same Riley's Gray. And he would get two very, very different things. And what he was encouraging was not, oh, I love that color, or that's what I'm going to wear, but rather look at the possibilities of every single color and look at the possibilities of change and what occurs um, with the different juxtapositions. All right. It would be even better if you could sing that and sound like Mindy Patinkin, but it was really good anyway, <laughs> the way that you did it. We've been so uh, lucky to have with us uh, Nicholas Fox Weber. Uh, and yes, obviously squares uh, uh, and especially the incredibly color rich squares uh, of Joseph Albers are suddenly hip. So we'll take a break and we'll go out on that notion.
And we're back. Okay. Um, the reason I'm halting here is because we're nearly right here. Kion Wolf does all the credits and thanks, everybody. And Kion Wolf isn't here, which means that uh, on the board we have, uh, well, this is just All-Star uh, Day. Uh, we have the big kid, Katie Tularski, is actually running our board today. Uh, Betsy Kaplan is the person who meticulously and lovingly uh, produced this show. And thanks to everybody else who helped out, including Jonathan McPants, who is uh, working uh, the Facebook Live feed of Radio for the Deaf. And, of course, those wonderful signers, uh, Mary Sue and Heidi who were here earlier, and I'm sure there's zillions of other people to thank, and I should probably point out that the part of Bill Curry was played by Mark Rothko, uh, and tomorrow's The Nose. We're, re- we're reviving The Nose after a three- or four-week hiatus. Uh, we've all been to the movies to see the movie Searching, uh, featuring John Cho. We'll tell you more about what we're going to talk about when we figure that out. Uh, all right, so we're going back, back to the world of color, uh, and um, so uh, I'm about to introduce you to two people who see colors that you don't see. Before I do that, David Scott Caston, uh, author of On Color uh, with Stephen Farthing. You know, you said earlier uh, when you were talking about the assigning of values to color, there aren't that many colors, which is sort of true, but it's also true that there's like a million colors, right? Yeah, I think some scientists think there's as many as 17 million. We don't have names for them. Uh, we have names for a lot, though. Um, so, And pigeons can see more of them than we can. Well, that's why I was thrilled to just hear you introduce this next segment because – one of the things I was writing about this, uh, one of the, those wonderful neuroscientists who responded to my desperate email said he was working on pigeon color vision and said that pigeons are either tetrachromats, they have four sets of cones, or pentachromats, so five sets of cones, which means that pigeons see colors that we don't see and see the colors we see differently. So that intrigued me. And so I got very interested in pigeon vision in some way, thinking they must laugh at our color names. <laughs> well, well our, our, they kind of go, whoo, whoo. Uh, so our next two guests are nothing like pigeons, except maybe in this one way, but they're nothing like pigeons in any other way. That would be Maureen Seberg, a journalist and author of two books, including Struck by Genius, How a Brain Injury Made Me a Mathematical Marvel, and Tasting the Universe, People Who See Colors in Words and Rainbows in Symphonies. Uh, and also joining us is Megan Arquette, owner of Megan Arquette Design a residential and commercial interior design studio. Uh, she is a polysynesthete and a tetrachromat. So is Maureen. Uh, so Maureen, I, um, I'm going to have you set this up. I mean, David set it up a little bit, but uh, yes. you, you, you s- explain what does this mean, tetrachromat? Well, it means that I have the genes, the potential to see as many as 100 million colors. <laughs> and um, it comes down to having an extra cone class for color perception. So most people have three uh, cone classes, and Megan and I have four. And one thing that we should say is that, uh, Maureen, uh, one reason that there is no dude tetrachromat on was, A, because we wanted the <laughs> two of you, but because there is no such thing, right? There is no such thing. It's an X chromosome uh, issue. But interestingly, the men who are colorblind um, inform our world. Um, When Dr. Knight of the University of Washington at Seattle was considering testing my DNA, uh, both Megan and I have our DNA proof of this genotype, he asked me, let me ask you first, Maureen, are any of the men in your family colorblind? And I said, well, sure, my brother, my uncle, my cousins. And he said, that's it. I'm sending you a spit kit. <laughs> Interestingly, yeah. the, we go together. Men in, yeah. in, in families who are colorblind 
often have tetrachromat female relatives. All right, so now, Megan, I want to know, I mean, you're sitting there seeing colors that I can't see. Um, mm-hmm. Is there any way you can talk about some of those colors, like you know, what, they, what a color looks like to you that you're kind of aware of the, that you're seeing but folks like me are not seeing? Sure. I get asked that all the time because it's, you know, it's almost like the emperor's new clothes situation. Um, So the best way I can describe it, Maureen and I actually were just talking about this. I see, uh, so I see colors uh, two different ways. When I see colors in nature, old color TVs used to go on, sort of get a snowy uh, screen when in between, you know, stations. And what I see in natural things like leaves, I see sort of a very pixelated version of the colors, and I can really focus down onto which colors those are. If I'm looking at, for instance, paint or something artificial, I see it in layers. Um, I can pretty much gauge at this point because I work with paint colors so much. I can see when a color needs to be tweaked by maybe a little bit of the black or a little bit of the yellow. And I'm talking about a pink, possibly, or a blue, something that I think someone who does not have tetrachromacy probably would never see that that sort of thing. Um, what made me realize that I probably had this, I was listening to another uh, NPR uh, show called uh, Radio Lab, and I they were talking about a woman on it was talking about when she was a child seeing the sky. And everyone would say the sky is blue. And she said, no, it's magenta or it's orange or, you know, she would see all these colors within it. And that was my aha moment. That's Mm. when I said, oh, my gosh, I've had that experience. I do have that experience. So I want to just talk about um, the ways in which sometimes maybe that's a little bit difficult for you to communicate to other people, particularly given some of the career choices you've made, right? Uh, In your business, you you work with painters, uh, people who are going to come and and, and paint something a specific color. Uh, Are you able to communicate with them uh, using the words that they understand as opposed to the words? I mean, how does that work? How does that go? Uh, Well, I, you know, I call the colors begin with and so the painters are my subcontractors and so their job is just to apply it to the surface Mm -hmm. but what's interesting when I started my career um, I would have painters that I hadn't worked with before and a hundred percent of the time I would get phone calls are you sure we just opened this can of paint this is what you want on the walls Mm -hmm. and I'd say just trust me put it up trust me I know what I'm doing and a hundred percent of the time I would come by the site and I the painters were like I would never have thought this would have worked but Mm -hmm. it did so from that perspective, yes, I think the guys at my paint store, I drive them crazy because they mix their paint according to the little recipe that's given to them. And I always ask them to pop it back open because I need to see it. I need yeah. to see it in artificial light. I need to take it outside. And more often than not, I need it tweaked just the tiniest of bits. And, so. and so you were talking to a producer, uh, Betsy Kaplan, and you described a certain color of red to uh, red to her as juice in a cherry pie with plummy purples and burnt embers. Uh, and I also know that for a while you had a job that involved sort of the consignment of luxury furniture where there'd be a drop-down mem- menu. And I assume you just had to—I I assume you couldn't, using the drop-down menu, pick juice in cherry pie with plummy purples and burnt <laughs> embers, right? Right. So I— so. Part of my job was to go in and assess furniture that could be put onto the site. And so we had a backside to the site where we would, um, you know, populate it with all of the information, the description of the piece of furniture, and, of course, down at the bottom, what color is this? Mm. 
and they had uh, probably nine different colors in the drop down. And for me to choose green or gray or any of the colors sometimes proved really difficult because, uh, you know, I would see a lot of colors. And so luckily I would usually have a male assistant with me (laughs) and I would say, what is this reading to you? And I did that often enough that he asked me if I was colorblind. And I said, uh, no, but I have this very weird um, ability and it's sort of what I call my superpower. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm seeing are a lot of colors, and I at this point I cannot tell what this is reading. Right. To you, you, sh- you should have said you should meet my uncle. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so um, so Maureen, um, I have to ask, and I apologize uh, for being so predictable. Uh, but when the big <laughs> argument about the dress was going back and forth, uh, the dress on the on the interwebs, did did you as a tetrachromat, did you have a different take on this from what everybody else had, or or were you the person who got to decide since you can see so? Oh, absolutely a different take. I thought blue and black or white and gold, it's, it was too limited. <laughs> Going back to Megan's drop-down menu, right? It, where was the periwinkle? Where was the bronze? And so I ended up writing a piece for a blog I do at Psychology Today about the senses saying that tetrachromats should really be the people to decide this debate. (laughs) And in fact, our lives are very much like living the what color is the dress debate every single day. Because when someone refers to a red cardinal, I feel my blood boil just a little, and it's vermilion. It's not red at all. Well, actually, anytime there's a red red cardinal outside my door, I ask a pigeon uh, what color it really is. But um, <laughs> so so I, so David, since you got this whole thing started, I'm going to let you have uh, the last word on the show. But yeah, why why don't we make it about this? I mean, this is a huge fight. Uh, what can you what knowledge can you bring to the whole dress argument? It was quite amazing that for about three weeks this dominated the news cycle. <laughs> uh, it was much more fun than what dominates it now. Um, I guess my sense is. I, I love that little segment there, and they answer that tetrachromat should decide, which was really my sort of argument about pigeons in my book. Um, but it seems to me two things apply to that dress debate. One is nobody saw the dress. What everybody was seeing was a photograph of the dress that had been uploaded to some computer screen. So there's already all sorts of uh, interference with the experience of the dress. And if you and if you even you know, tilt your screen, you, colors seem different. The other thing is we make color, and brains are correcting for right. what we think we see. Once again, it is we're not seeing colors of the world. We're seeing the colors of the mind. All right. So take the dress to Democritus. Ask him what color it is, or find a tetrachromat, uh, or get a spit kit. I don't know. There's so much advice on this show. I don't know. We're just going to have to stop now.